Well, again, good morning, everybody, and glad you're here this morning. Looking forward to seeing what God has in store for us today. A um, couple of things I want to sort of do right now, kind of get us moving forward in our service. Um, I want to highlight just a couple of things that are happening in the next week that are efforts, thank you, um, for us to continue reaching out in this world, even though it feels like, um, it feels like it's getting more difficult to do in a corporate sense. Like, for instance, you know that, well, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we have a long-standing relationship with Spring Mills Middle School. We met there for about, oh, I guess 11 years. And through that time, we developed a relationship where in the holidays, we had a really neat opportunity to reach out to members of the faculty, to students, to, to families um, with Christmas gifts and with food and Thanksgiving meals and Christmas meals and so forth. And, you know, if in case you haven't heard about it, there's this thing called the COVID-19 pandemic. Maybe you haven't heard about it, but, but it, made, it made that process very difficult. As a matter of fact, up until just this week, we didn't think it was going to be able to happen, which was a real disappointment to us. Now, the reason why it's a disappointment is because providing those meals and, and giving people, you know, turkeys and hams and all that kind of stuff. Listen, nobody receives a free turkey and then says, oh, this is how I can be saved by receiving this turkey. We understand that. But it was a way for us to cultivate relationship, just to continue to, to kind of tear down the barriers that exist between the world and the church. And one of the ways that we would do that, one of the many ways, was just to kind of show God's love in practical ways. That's what we would often say. Again, this year, it looked like it wasn't going to happen. But just this week, and so this is short notice, just this week we, we heard back from the school that they were able to do what they've done for us for the last 12 years, and that is gather up a list of families that have need. So this is not, what I'm going to share with you, this is not just random turkey you know, throwing. That's not what we're doing. These are people that the guidance department at the school have identified families in need. They've reached out to the families. They've said, yes, we need help. And what's going to happen is we're going to provide them with food. They're going to come here to our building, and they're going to pick it up. And it's a great way for us to develop relationships. We have had people visit and be part of our church from this cultivation of relationship. But again, it's very short notice. It's happening next Saturday. So what that means is between now and next Saturday, we got to gather up enough food to feed 30 families. So today you're going to get, if you're part of our email sort of list, and if you aren't, if you send an email to the email address that's in the worship notes, you will be, you're going to get a sign-up genie list. And what that is, it's a very easy process. You go onto a website, we have all the food items we need, you check off what you're going to bring, and then you get it here. Either sometime this week, you bring it by here, okay? There's somebody here typically on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from early in the morning till the afternoon. There's people other times, but we guarantee have the door open during that time. You can bring it through the week, or you can bring it next Saturday here. Next Saturday from 10 to 1130 is when these families are going to be invited here. So we'd love to have you come out, maybe at 9.30 that morning, and bring what you're going to bring and be part of the process. You know, what we'll do next Saturday, just so you're aware, we'll gather up together before the event, say at 9.30. We'll talk about what we're going to do. We'll, we'll give you a little bit of training of how to handle this moment. And then people show up from 10 to 11.30, and, and some will come at 10.29, and others will be here at 9 o'clock. And so for an hour and a half, we'll get an opportunity to do just what we want to do, and that is show God's love in practical ways. Other opportunities on the fifth Sunday of this month, um, all we're going to be able to do because of all the restrictions that are on right now, we're still going downtown, and we still provide some food down there for people that are struggling. If you want to be part of that, reach out to Brian Seacrest, call the church office. And then tomorrow night, there's another neat opportunity. Um, you know, if you haven't heard of, there's a, there's a place downtown called the Martinsburg Rescue Mission. It's where, where homeless people can find a place to to get a warm bed and a warm meal. A lot of churches, because of COVID-19, have stopped going and, and being part of the service at the rescue mission. But we've continued to do that. There's a group of men that go out. I mean, I think it's like sometimes eight to ten men that go over there on Monday evening. They, they interact with the guys. They play chess. They, they eat food together. There's a, a time of devotions and so forth. If you want to be part of that, you can be there tomorrow at 730. Just show up at the rescue mission, Google it. You can find it and be part of that. If you, will, you will have a great time. 
I promise you that. If you want information, reach out to Chris Dozer. Um, if you don't know that name, you can try to catch me, and I can, I can point you in that direction. Well, this is, a, this is a neat thing's happening today. Today will be the first time in this new facility that we are welcoming in new members to our church. Now, I ask you this question. This morning when you got up, and maybe you're talking with your spouse, or maybe you're all by yourself, but, but you thought, we're going to go to church today. Was there any question of where you were going to go? We're like, well, we could go to this church, or we go to that church, we go to another. Or did you know when you decided you were going to church, you were coming here? If that's the case, if this is where you were going to come, then let me just fill you in a little secret. This is your church. This is your body of believers. And I want to encourage you to go through the, honestly, the willful process to bring yourself under the submission of authority in the body of Christ by making that official and becoming a member of our church. This morning in the first service, there were five people that became members. And this, this afternoon or this second service, there's going to be three, I believe, that are going to be joining with us. And I would encourage you to do this. Um, if you're not a member of a church and this is your church, on your way out, pick up a constitution, read through the doctrinal statement. That's the, that's the most important thing for you to decide upon what church you're going to be part of. Do they faithfully teach the Bible? We've laid out for you what, what we believe Scripture teaches about several areas of doctrine. Read through that. And then you'll find this thing that we call a membership covenant. It's, just a, it's a promise that you make to the Lord and our body of believers, our church, there are witnesses to that. And so I'm going to ask those that are going to become members this morning, if you would walk your way on up here, okay? Go ahead on up. There you go. All right. And so we have three individuals, and we'll take a moment and introduce you guys. You can just stay down there. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. So, all right. So let's introduce these people. So, Maddie, why don't you come around here? You can go first, okay? So Maddie's one of these people that... Oh, I'm supposed to put a mask on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Stay back. Stay back. All right, does that work? Am I good? Check, check, check. There we go. All right. So Maddie's one of these people that she makes me want to cry all the time. You know that? I know. I know you do. And here's why. Because on Facebook, there's all these pictures that, get, that come up on Facebook from like the early days of Centerpoint. And you're like an infant and you're no longer, well, you're not really an infant. How old were you when you became part of Centerpoint? I was thinking about six or seven, yeah. So these pictures of Maddie at six years old at, you know, picnics or out at the river or, or baptism services, and there she is. And then I look at her, and she's now a young woman. So, But Maddie has decided to become part of us officially, and that's awesome, Maddie. It makes her really happy. So then we have this couple. I remember when George and Beth started at our church, they were a young, married, no kids. Remember all that? Yeah, how different life was. Yeah, barely, barely. Then I got two boys, okay? Do they keep you a little active? Yeah. Still young, still married, but two kids. <laughs> that happens, that happens. George had less hair. So, well, we're thankful you guys have made this decision to become part of us. So I want to read um, our membership covenant. Now, what this is, just so you know, this is a promise that all of our members make to the Lord. It's much like a wedding ceremony. You know, if you're married and you had a wedding ceremony, then you stood in front of a group of people and you made promises to that person, but ultimately to the Lord. And everybody there was a witness to that. And that's what becoming a member of any church is. You are, you are making a promise to God that you're going to live out this, this what God calls us to in Scripture and you're doing it in front of witnesses that will come along and help you and stand with you. And that's a, that's a significant commitment in your life. And I'm thankful you guys have done that and those that did in the first service as well. So let me read this membership covenant. Having received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and having agreed to the statement of faith and practice of, of this church, we now enter into a covenant with each other as one body in Christ. Therefore, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in accordance with God's word, we promise to pursue intimacy with God, 
demonstrate love for one another, maintain a God-honoring testimony, live a strong witness for Christ, and support this church and its leadership. So as God enables you, is this your promise before the Lord? It is? All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for George and Beth and Maddie. And first of all, we thank you that you have won them to yourself. Lord, they've each shared their testimony of, of how they put their trust in you. We thank you for that, Lord. That is, that is a miracle that we do not want to neglect. Thank you for that. Father, I thank you that you've brought them to us, that you've allowed them to be part of our body. And, and these three individuals, I mean, there are many memories that we have and experiences and, and I look forward to more in the future, but I thank you for these relationships, Lord. God, would you just allow us each to do exactly what we have strived to do? Pursue you, love one another, keep our testimony strong, support this church, Lord, through our, through our lives. God, let this be evident to a world that is lost and dying and needing you. Thank you for these, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the Bible, it describes a right hand of fellowship, but we can't really do that anymore. So now we give an elbow, I guess, of, of greeting. I don't know what that would be. So, yeah. So, so let these know that you're happy you guys can sit down, that they, they've become part of us. And um, praise the Lord for that. There, I unmasked. Don't get to say that much anymore. Hey, open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I know I probably say this a lot, but I feel pretty confident in saying that Romans chapter 8 is probably one of the very best passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. I mean, this chapter is tremendous. Um, I've, got, I've got a good friend and, um, who is, is striving to even memorize this passage. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite a goal, but I think it's a, an admirable goal. And I would encourage you, maybe the whole chapter, all 38 verses, is a little bit much, but maybe you can select something along the way that, that God really uses to prod your heart. And you might say, I'm going to put that to memory. That's one of the ways that I, that I experience my intimacy with God. I memorize some scripture. I'm not as good at it as I used to be, but I memorize some scripture and allow the Lord to kind of bring that to my mind over and over again. And I think Romans 8 is a phenomenal place that maybe you might do just that. So we're in the middle of a kind of a series right now, and I want to just remind you of, of that. We've been talking, we really started out with this question, and that's what in the world is going on? What is going on? What is God doing? I don't know about you, but I have purposely avoided the news over the last probably week. Um, I don't need to be informed. People will say, oh, you've got to be informed. Well, why? So I've purposely avoided it. You might think I'm being silly for doing that. But um, as I've even talked to people today, honestly, I'm glad I have. Because it sounds like things are pretty much out of control. Or are they? We started out with this series of questions. And it, was, it boiled down to, what is God doing? And we began a couple weeks ago with, what is God doing with the government? With the government. And what we, what we came to realize from studying Romans chapter 13 together is that what God is doing is accomplishing His sovereign plan. And He uses governing authorities to do that. Even those that, that may be opposed to Him at times. So wittingly or unwittingly, government authorities are fulfilling the plan of God. So much so that Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, as the Spirit really inspires him to do this, he writes that these authorities, and remember, he's talking about the, the Roman emperor when he wrote this, are God's servants or God's deacons is what the Greek word is. We have deacons at our church. Authorities, God calls them his deacons. God's servants for his good. And again, I'm not suggesting that authorities throughout time have known what God's plan was and set out to, to fulfill it. I understand that. But I recognize that God is big enough to use people who are opposed to him to accomplish his plan. I mean, perhaps the greatest example of this is Judas who betrayed Jesus, right? Think about that. So we saw that about authorities, government authorities. 
That was in Romans 13. And then last week we went to Romans chapter 11 and we asked a different question. And that was, what is God doing in the world? And where we landed on was this, that God is, God, what God's plan is in all the world is to bring glory to himself. And so we ended with this great truth in Romans chapter 11, that God is, is doing all things. It's, it's to him and through him and by him that God is glorifying himself. And so the whole creation and all of history and all of time is working towards one crescendo of glorifying God. What that means is magnifying the goodness of God, the power of God. Like a telescope that's able to, to, to allow our eye to see the stars and the planets and the moon. All of history, all that's happening is like that telescope shining the light, allowing our eyes to see and the eyes of all of creation to see that God is good and that God is great. And though we may not see it micro style, meaning in the very moment that we're in, in the 72 years that we are in, but we can, when we look at it from the big perspective of all of time, we see that God is glorifying himself. That was Romans chapter 11. In my small group on Thursday, we talked about Romans chapter 11. And, and I want to encourage you, as opportunities come your way, to plug into a small group. Be part of that kind of a connection. It was neat to hear how God was using that passage in people's lives. But today we come to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we're going to ask a different question. And that is, what is God doing in us? And when I say us, I don't mean all of humanity. I mean the children of God. I mean the followers of God. What is God doing in us? Next week, we'll ask a different question, a little more personal question, a little micro question, and that is what is God doing in you specifically? But for today, for today it's what is God doing in us? And I just want to tell you, I'll just, this is what it is. It's in your worship notes. You can fill in the blank if you're one of those people. Here's, what's, here's what God is doing in us. While accomplishing his plan in the world, God is keeping his children secure in his love so that they can have the joy of joining him. So the emphasis today is that God is keeping us secure in his love. Let's read 31 to 39. If you have God's word, open it up to Romans chapter 8. And let's read this together. And along the way, I might make a few comments. And then we'll talk about it in detail. Paul writes this. What then shall we say to these things? Okay, I got to stop already. What are these things? These things are everything that Paul has said in the first eight chapters of Romans. We don't have time to go through with it right now. But I'll just tell you briefly what it is. If you're not familiar with Romans, it breaks down into this outline. The first three chapters talk about the sinfulness of man, that we are all short of God's standard. We are all sinners. The next two chapters, four and five, deal with the fact that in Christ, by faith, we are declared righteous. We are saved because of the finished work of Christ. And in chapters six, seven, and eight, what God reveals, what the Spirit of God reveals, is how God is conforming us to his image. So when he says these things, he's talking about that God picked us up as sinners, saved us, and is now conforming us to the image of Christ. So now what we see is, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? By the time we're done today, you're going to understand what that statement means. But Paul is going to develop it, the Spirit of God develops it now through Paul's pen Here's what, he writes. Here's what he writes. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay, I got to pause for just a minute again. Be careful with that phrase. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Folks, this is not the prosperity gospel. This is not a promise that God's going to give you whatever you want. You know, you want a red Corvette, so you got it, boom. You want a new job, you got it, boom. You want a spouse, boom. You want a child, boom. No, that is not what this is promising. As a matter of fact, it is going to become very clear, even as we just read this today, 
that God is aware that just the opposite comes to his children often. You'll see it in just a moment. But be careful here that you don't take that one verse out of context and say, oh yeah, this is what it means. God's going to give me all I want. You know that isn't true. That doesn't even pass the smell test, right? You know that doesn't line up with what you see. Nor does it line up, and more important, it does not line up with the Word of God. So who shall, now we get to the main point. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor, the, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want us to understand today that if you're in Jesus today, God's love for you is secure. I, I really can't think of any better example that, that I'm familiar with than, than a familiar example, one that I have shared with you on many occasions. And that is a, a small child in the secure love of his parents. And perhaps maybe the, the best picture of this is driving down that interstate highway, as I've shared before. Traveling 75 miles per hour in a 2,000-pound vehicle, being passed on the left and right by tractor trailers and all kinds of, of just scary, scary things, right? You got cliffs and guardrails and, and falls and all these things that could happen. And there in the back seat is that small child, or maybe even a little bit older, and there they, there they sit in the back seat, knocked out of sleep, how can they sleep when you're traveling at that speed? How can they sleep when you're surrounded by danger? How can they sleep when, when one bad decision, one moment of indecision, one drifting off to sleep, and the whole family could be wiped out in a horrible collision, and that child is in the back sleep asleep? How? Because dad's at the wheel. Because mommy is driving. And that child just, they implicitly trust. This is the kind of relationship that God has offered to us. Now here's what Paul does in, in 31 and 32. Really, again, it's the Spirit of God that's making an argument. And the argument here, there's, there's, there's a rhetorical device, and just, just bear with me for just a minute. You'll get this. There's a rhetorical device where there's an argument from the greater to the lesser. So here's the idea. If I can convince you of this greater thing, then you know the things that fall behind it, the lesser things, are also true. It's a rhetorical argument. Here's an example. Suppose you have two children, two sons. Let's call them Cain and Abel, okay? Cain's older than Abel. Now, if Cain is too young, now who, by the way, who would name their children Cain and Abel? But if Cain is too old or too young, that is, to drive the riding lawnmower on his own, then certainly Abel, the younger brother, is too young. That's an argument from the greater to the lesser. So what the Spirit of God is going to do here to convince us that God's love is secure, he's going to argue from the greatest to the least. So if he convinces you of the greatest, if he can show the greatest is true, then all the lesser things fall into line. And so where does the Spirit of God go? What is the greatest expression of God's secure love? 
why it's this. Verse number 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Where does God go? He goes, your eternal relationship with the Father. That is the greatest. That is the greatest. So that, that argument from greatest to lesser, less, lesser brings a convicting question. It brings a convicting question. Follow along with me in my logic. I ask you, what would be the greatest convincing truth in your life of God's love? Be honest with yourself. Only you know this. What would be the greatest? Would it be your wealth? Would it be your companionship? A spouse? A child? Your health? Your career? What's the greatest? What's the greatest that if God convinced you of that, then the other things would fall in line? I pity the person who says anything but what God does. Where God goes to convince us of the greatest is our eternal relationship with Him. That is the greatest. Therefore, everything else falls into line. And this is what one of the many things that's wrong with much of American Christianity. That promises us the greatest that America can offer. Freedom, security, privacy, friends. And says, if that's offered, everything else will fall in line. It's a lie, folks. It's a lie. God has shown us what is the greatest. And the greatest is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And it's shown at the cross. That is the greatest. God's greatest concern, keeping his children secure in his love. That is God's greatest concern. Verse 31 and 32, God's love for his children is secure. And I want us to see where he goes. In verse number 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the gospel, folks. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, question for you, pop quiz. You go out and get in your car at noon today or maybe 12.05, and you drive down the road down here to Rocks, and you realize we need gas, so you pull into the gas station, you get out of the car, you're pumping gas. The guy that's right across the, from the pump from you looks over you and says, hey, I saw you pull out of that church over there. Yeah? Listen, I, I got a question for you. How can I be saved? How can I know that I will have Eternal life. What would you say? It's just you in your mind right now. So embarrassment right now is out the corner. It's, it's, out, it's, off, it's off the table. You, you don't have to be, you know, you're not hindered by anything like that. Are you prepared right now to share what God has identified is the greatest expression of his love. Could you talk someone through the gospel of Jesus Christ? I want to take a minute to do that. Now this, this might feel familiar. It might, might feel like a repeat. But listen, that moment could come. This is, the, this is the, the moment in all of time that God has used to illustrate his secure love for us. So we probably should be able to explain it. So let me give you a slide and just, let's just walk through this for a moment. Matter of fact, I would encourage you, you know, if it's a help to you as we're going along here, you should take a picture of this on your phone and, and review it and, and think through what is here. Because see, here's the reality. The Bible has bad news and good news. It has both. And the bad news is about you and me. And the good news is about God. Now let's start with the bad news. Because the reality is, if you don't understand the bad news, you can't appreciate the wonderful news of what Jesus has done. The start of the bad news is this, that we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is anything that you think, do, or say 
that falls short of God's righteousness. You might say, well, I'm not that bad of a person, Lowell. I'm a pretty good guy. Yeah, you might be. But let's suppose that you and I go out in a parking lot and we say, let's see who can throw a rock and hit Walmart. Now, you're younger than me, maybe. Okay, I'm approaching 51. And I'm finding that like when I throw something now, like if I throw a rock or something, it, my shoulder hurts for a while. So I can't really throw very far anymore. So you might throw further than me. You might throw that rock a long ways. And I just kind of like throw at the end of the parking lot. But are either one of us going to hit Walmart? I mean, it's like a half mile. Are we going to hit Walmart? No. We're going to both fall short. And that's what it is. The truth that we are all sinners. As bad as that news is, the bad news gets worse. Because not only are we all sinners, but the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What's wage? Wage is something you earn. If I hire you to mow my grass and I tell you I pay you $50, you mow the grass, I give you 50 bucks. Why? You earned it. The wages of sin is death. So look where we are. We're all sinners. The wages of sin is death. We're destined for hell. And aren't you glad it doesn't end there? But the vast majority of people, listen now, listen. The vast majority of people, that's where it ends for them. That's where it ends. Every survey ever done finds that in America, less than 10% of the population are trusting in the good news. So the vast majority of the people that you work with and walk by and drive by, they stop right there. So we go to the good news. Oh, it's great news. That's why we call it the gospel, the good news. Good news number one, that Christ died for you. And it's even better than just that. Because Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, Jesus died for us. Somebody illustrated it this way. Imagine I had COVID-19. I've got the virus. And I mean I've got it bad. I'm at the hospital getting ready to die. And you come into my hospital room. Dr. Fashi sent you, okay? He takes all the virus out of me. All of it. Big syringe. Sucks out the virus. Puts it into you. What happens to me? Virus is gone. I live. What happens to you? You got the virus. You die. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He died in our place. That's love. And that's why it is that we can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is clear. For by grace you have been saved. Not by works. We don't work our way to God. No. This is not by your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So at that point, you're talking to this guy at the gas station. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of these times. You just walk into it and boom. Believe it or not, I have had that kind of experience. You might say, this is a silly talk, Lowell. That never happens. No, it has happened to me on more than one occasion. Where I just, somebody just says to me, how can I be saved? At that point, I say, hey, what's keeping you from trusting Jesus right now? Now, that was four minutes and 31 seconds that I walked through the gospel. This is the moment that God, in arguably the greatest passage of Scripture... This is the thing that the Spirit of God said, here is the greater. Everything else falls into place now. Are we prepared for that? Have you responded to that? It's the good news of what Jesus has done. Let's get back to our passage, though. So let's, let's see where God, what God builds upon this, okay? We're, we're building this structure of secure love. So verse 33, taking this all into account... 
the, the Spirit of God says this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, this is a rhetorical question, and what that means is it's a question that the answer is assumed in it. And in the Greek, it is assumed a negative answer. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. That's, what, that's the answer to this question. And that's my point. That's my, that's my point right now, and that is this. No one can separate the father from his children. No one. Who can, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Why, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? So who can stand there and point their finger at the children of God and condemn them? Who's going to do it? I mean, after all, it says Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, an implied answer of no one. It can't be done with the children of God. No one can separate the children of God from the love of God. Now, there are four doctrinal truths. I mean, deep doctrinal truths that are in these two and a half verses that I just want to quickly allude to and just say a word about. Because they firm up the secure love that we have in Christ. Just follow along with me. You'll see them. Look at verse number 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There's four doctrines here in these two and a half verses. And the first one here is the doctrine of election. Now, what does that mean? It means that God, before the foundation of the world, in His grace, has called some to Himself. We call it election. I don't understand it, but the Bible teaches it. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4 says... So before the world was even formed, God in his grace called people to himself. Jesus said in John 6, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. You can't do it. Romans 3 says that we are, our, our mouths are like graves. And, and, and they, all they do is, is speak forth death. And no one comes, no one seeks after God on their own. That's what the Bible says. So in God's grace, the only way anyone was going to ever come to him is if God moved and drawed people to himself. Now, in case you start thinking, well, I'm okay, I must have been a pretty good guy. Like maybe God in, maybe God in the past looked forward and was like, hey, I like her. She's neat. I mean, I know everything, so I'm going to draw her to myself. And maybe God chose you because you're just so special. Maybe you're fast, maybe you're cute, maybe you're smart, I don't know. You're mistaken. That's not, that's not what it is. Listen to what made you elect worthy. You want to know what it is that made you worthy of God's election? Well, you find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to what God says. God chose, this is chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. I've grabbed some phrases here for sake of time. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. God chose what is foolish, what is weak, what is low, and what is despised. Why? To confound the wise, to confound the mighty, to confound the ones that are high and lifted up. So if you're feeling low, weak, despised, and foolish, you are right there. That's who God elected. Not the special people. No. The lowly. The foolish. Oh, great truth. We've got to keep going a little faster. Then it says, it is God who justifies. Here's our second doctrinal truth. The first one is the election of God. That God chose you to respond. And the second one is that God justifies. Now, what does that mean? That means that God credits his children with his righteousness. He credits his children with his righteousness. Now, you need to hear what I said there. I didn't say gives them. He doesn't give them your, his righteousness. See, that would imply that you have to show that righteousness right now. You don't show righteousness. I know you don't. Oh, there are moments that it displays in your life. But you have thoughts, actions, and words that dishonor God. So what God did was this. He credited you with righteousness. 
He said, I'm going, to give your, I'm going to give you the credit of this. Though you can't produce it, I credit you with righteousness. When I was a child, like when I was like eight years old, okay, any eight-year-olds in the room? A lot of them are down the hallway. When I was eight years old, I had a bank account. Pretty cool. And you had a bank book. Anybody else remember the handwritten bank book? And it, yeah. And I would go to the bank. My mom would take me to the bank, and I'd wait in line. For you guys that don't understand this, this is going to blow your mind. We would walk in forward in line with your little bank book, and you would get up to the counter, and I would hand them my bank book and my $3. They would take my bank book, and they would write in it with a pen. Can you imagine this? $3. Add it up and write down $52.63 and hand it back to me. And I was so proud. What a system. I guess they must have wrote it down somewhere there. I don't really know. But that's, what, that's how we used to do banking. Listen, God's justification, which is by faith only, Romans 5. God credits your account with righteousness. He doesn't say... Okay, now you're righteous, go prove it. He credits your account with righteousness. This is what it means to be justified. Credited with Christ's righteousness. God thinks of you with the righteousness of Christ. That's how he thinks of you. That's how God thinks about you as his, as his son or as his daughter. You have the righteousness of Christ. That's how he thinks of you. Oh, what a gift. And it doesn't end there. I mean, it just, there's another doctrinal truth here. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. This is the atonement of Christ. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus. That Jesus died and rose for us. For his children. That Jesus stood in our place and represented us. And as our representatives, he died. And as our representatives, he raised the atonement of Christ. What, what he did to allow us to receive this righteousness. And then finally, check this out. Who is at the right hand of God, indeed, he is interceding for us. What is this? This is the eternal high priesthood of Jesus. That for all of eternity... Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for you. This is a secure love. When we fail, when we sin, because we're going to, Christ is there interceding for us. His death counted for us. He's given us righteousness, and He chose us before the foundations of the world. In that kind of relationship, in that kind of relationship, how can that love be anything but secure? When my uh, oldest was about eight, this is probably not the greatest parenting moment that I'm ever going to share from the pulpit, that's for sure, but it worked, so who knows. When my oldest was about eight years old, he informed me and my wife, and if he's listening, you probably remember this, son, he informed us he didn't want to live at our house anymore. Okay, in all of his wisdom at eight years old, he was done living at our house. So I said, okay, son, pack a bag. I did an Andy Griffith on him. I said, go ahead, pack a bag, and we'll, we'll go somewhere else. So he did that. He uh, had a little Mickey Mouse backpack, and he put a couple shirts in it, a couple pairs of underwear, a few socks, put it on his back. I said, all right, let's go. So we got in the car, and we drove to the Martinsburg Rescue Mission. And I pulled up. Okay, Jake, let's go. We walk into the door. I go to the front counter. There's a guy, you know, sitting there at this desk, big old imposing figure. I said, uh, excuse me, sir, this is my eight-year-old son, and he's decided he doesn't want to live at our house anymore. And the guy said, okay, well, bring him on in. So he walked inside, and I walked out. Man, I wish I had a video of what happened in there. They take him in. They show him a bed. This will be where you'll sleep. Now, you'll have dinner down the hallway here. You know, it lights out every night at a certain time. And, and, and during the day, you've got to leave. You can't stay during the day. So you're going to have to go out and just walk around or something. Go to the park. Or, and I imagine my son sitting there. Okay. All right. Finally, they, they come and get me. You know, like my crying six, seven, eight-year-old, I'm not sure how old he was, by his side. He decided he thought probably he could stay at home, you know. 
Now, here's the truth. Was I going to leave him there? No. He, he thought maybe I was. I don't know. His love was secure. My love for him was secure. Why? Because he earned it? Because he proven himself wonderful or faith? No. Because he was my son. Now, I took him through that challenge to teach him a lesson, but and maybe you don't think it was a good idea. I'm not so sure it was now that I'm almost a grandfather. But a father's love is secure for his sons and his daughters. And that's what the Spirit of God wants us to get. So verse 35, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There is no answer. And now, now it's, well, the answer is no. There is no, there is no positive answer to that question. Verse number 35. Now there's a bit of a change that occurs, okay? Before we were talking about no one can separate us from the love of Christ. By the way, let me answer this. What about you? Can you separate you from the love of God? was a young man that I had a relationship with when I was a youth pastor. It was one of these situations where he came to Christ in a dramatic way. Been people working in his life, pointing him to Jesus, and he came to the point where he wanted to put his trust in Jesus. And he did. And we saw fruit in his life. We saw him burdened for other people. We saw him trying to share Christ with others. We saw righteousness being displayed in his life. Saw the fruit of the Spirit developing. And then... We kind of parted ways for a while. And he sent me a Facebook message. And it was this. Pastor Lowell, hey, how you doing? When I was 14 or something, you told me how to ask Jesus into my heart. Now, how do I get rid of him? How do I get him out of my heart? What a question. We interact a little bit. I came to realize that he was under conviction of God's spirit and, and he wanted away from God. To my knowledge, he has not come back to Christ yet. But I believe he will. I'm trusting that God is holding him as a son and that love is secure. And in time, maybe he'll come back to Jesus. Because Jesus said, no one can snatch us out of his hand. I believe not even you. Not even you. Listen, I was at a bedside of an 80-year-old man who received Christ and a couple hours later died. And he sat there in his bed, laid there in his bed, gasping for air. And in a moment of clarity, he said this to me. When I get to heaven, my mother is going to be shocked. She's going to be absolutely shocked when she sees me. Listen, we don't know what God is doing. We don't know what he's doing in people's lives. Some of you may have people like that friend of mine that you're longing to see them come back to Jesus. Listen, if they are a child of God, God's love for them is secure and he's going to win in their life. Because what can separate us from the love of God? No one. And then the passage changes. Now we're back to it. And now instead of no one, it's going to be no thing. Look at verse 35. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Let's make a few comments about each one of these things. Tribulation. This is an affliction that's outside of your body. An outward affliction, okay? I would say that for some of us right now, we think these masks are afflictions. They're outside of our body, and they're a difficulty, okay? That would probably come under, loosely under the label of tribulation. But then it says, or distress. Now, distress is something a little different. Distress goes on inside of you. It's, what, it's anxiety is what it is. So we have outside affliction. Now we have inside affliction. And the, your mask might be causing some of that internal affliction. So we got outside and we got inside. And then it goes to persecution. You know what that is. It's opposition that can be physical because of the name of Jesus. Would this separate from, from God's love? So you get what's happening here, right? 
Paul's saying, you got outside things that are pressing on you, afflicting you from the outside. Did God abandon you? you got internal anxiety. You know, you're worrying about something. You're, you're borrowing trouble from the future, and you start to think, has God abandoned me? No. How about persecution? So now we've got people who are opposing you just simply because of Jesus. Has God abandoned you? No. It goes on. How about famine? So now you're without the basic necessities of life. You don't have food. You don't have water. Believers can have times of no food and no water. There are believers who starve to death. It happens. Does that mean God abandoned them? No. How about nakedness? Now, that seems kind of strange. What that is is we don't have, again, the basic necessities to protect me from the, the climate, from the environment, clothing, shelter, etc. Does that mean God has abandoned you? No. How about danger? This is peril, okay? These are things that are, that are, that are threatening your life. And then we have sword. This is not your fencing class. That's not what this is. Sword is the instrument that was used as a capital punishment, uh, you know, the instrument of capital punishment in this day. So in our day today, it would be the electric chair. So what if it goes all the way to being killed for Christ? At that moment, has God abandoned you? Absolutely not. No one can separate us from the love of God. No thing can separate us from the love of God. It can't be done. Because one in the past, before the foundations of the world, at the cross, given you this righteousness, is interceding for you as your eternal high priest. For your sake, he says in verse number 36, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. This is a quotation from Psalm chapter 44, so written a thousand years before this. So we learn from this is this has always been the environment of believers living in this world. Believers living in this world, this is what they experience. But it doesn't mean God's love has abandoned them. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, the psalmist wrote. No, verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's the conclusion. Verses 37 to 39, we come to the conclusion that God's love in Christ Jesus is secure. Listen, no matter what comes, this is what God is doing in us, keeping us secure. As, as Jesus referred to it, in the palm of God's hand, secure. The back seat of the car asleep as you're driving down the road 80 miles an hour, no worries because daddy's driving. Listen, don't get frazzled by the world around. I've chosen my battle. It's not politics. It's not presidential candidates. It's not election tallies. That's not what it is. I've chosen my battle. It's the battle of the kingdom of heaven. And in that one, I know God is secure and working out his plan. Careful. Don't you get pulled into these things where God's very character is attacked by your anxiety over potentially what you have deemed is the loss of God's secure love. Just to end, verse 37. There's something very interesting here. Look at it with me, verse number 37. You see something interesting here? Notice what it says. No, in all these things. So it's answering all the previous questions, okay? No, there's our answer. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. What's a conqueror do? Well, they win. The conqueror comes in and defeats the enemy. You know, neck on the foot on the neck of the foe, and he conquered. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say you're conquerors. It says more than conquerors. One translator said super conquerors. What is a super conqueror? Listen, it's not that we defeat enemies. Through the gospel, by God's grace and God working, we see enemies converted the followers of Christ. More than conquerors doesn't mean you defeat the enemy. Listen, the people around us are not the enemy. 
There are those that need to hear the gospel. So super conquerors can come in and share the truth and see the enemies of the gospel become proponents of the gospel, become carriers of the gospel. That's what a super conqueror is. And the guy who wrote this, the guy who wrote these words, the guy that the Spirit of God inspired to write this, the, I mean, perhaps he's the greatest super conqueror of all time. The Apostle Paul was stamping out Christianity. And it wasn't that, that somebody came up and defeated him, you know, stabbed him and killed him and conquered him. No, Jesus came as a super conqueror, and converted him. And now he's writing these words to us as God's Spirit inspired him. So he says, for I am sure, look at these extremes, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, that's evil demons, okay, evil angels, that is demons. So angels nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, here word powers very likely just means earthly authorities, those who have power. So they can't do this either. So a governor or a, or a president or a king, they can't separate you from the love of the Father, no. Nor height nor depth, so, so anywhere in between, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So settle your hearts. Settle your hearts, center point. There's nothing that's happening that's outside of God's plan. And there's nothing that's going to unsettle God's love for you, His dedication to you. It is secure today and into eternity. Now, I got two questions just real quick, real quick. Okay, two questions to just throw up here on the screen. First of all, do you wrestle with security or assurance? Now, what's the difference? Security is, is understanding that those who are born again, that God is going to keep them as His to death and beyond. If you wrestle with security, then I encourage you, you need to understand the gospel better. Those who struggle with security, you, 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 not, not, not accepting that that once God calls me his child, I can never leave from it. I can never lose it. I'm his forever. If you struggle with that, you need to understand the gospel better. Spend some time in Romans 8 and read about the gospel. Some of you, though, may struggle with assurance. What is that? It's a little different. Assurance is the sense that God's Spirit gives you, Romans 8, verse number 21, I believe it is, that God's Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Assurance is a confidence that I am a follower of Christ. And that comes from experiencing the gospel. Security comes from understanding it. Assurance comes from experiencing it. As we submit our lives to Christ, His Spirit produces fruit in our life. When we turn around, we're like, wow. I, I'm seeing more faithfulness, more goodness, more truth, more self-control. God's changing me. And the other question is, I mean, honestly, answer, answer yourself this question. Are you prepared to explain the gospel? I'm really burdened over this, folks. Because we do not know what the future holds for us. And we, as the followers of Christ, need to be ready today to share how other people can respond to the gospel. When people's worlds are shaking and the walls come crumbling down, they're looking for hope. And here in this room are people who have that hope. Are we prepared? Let's put this on the screen one more time. Honestly, you should take a picture of this. Next one, that one, yeah. And, and put it to memory. Become so familiar with it that, that it can just come out of you. And be able to explain to other people how they can respond to Jesus. And then let them see that in your life. All right, I'm a little long as usual. Um, I want to pray. And one of the things I want to pray for today with you and leading you and corporately us going to the Lord together. I want to pray for people that you know that kind of meet 
the same criteria as my friend who reached out to me. I, I want us to pray corporately today for people that we know that are drifting from the Lord, that God would pursue them and convince them that his love is secure. Maybe it's you. Maybe, maybe you're the people we're praying for, the person we're praying for. And I want to thank God for what he's done. So join with me in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for your grace that while we were sinners, you died for us. And your love is eternally secure. We've seen that today from your word. Father, all this morning, names have just come flooding into my mind of people that know about you. But I don't know if they know you. Lord, they've been around your children, but are they yours? Only you know. Father, names are coming to my mind, and they're coming to other people's minds as well. We lift them up to you today. We ask you, Lord, to pursue them, to show them that your love is secure. And that they are your child, or can be, if they respond to the gospel. So chase them down, God. Lord, perhaps you're going to use one of us today to answer that prayer for somebody else. Let us be ready. Let us be prepared to be able to give others the reason for the hope that is in us. And Lord, show us by our changed life that we are yours. We thank you for your grace again, Lord. We lean upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, go out of here ready to share because seriously, now you might be the answer to somebody's prayer today to point somebody to him. Hey, do us a favor, wipe down that chair, would you? That saves us a lot of time, all right? With that, we'll be dismissed. Don't forget about food next Saturday. We could use your help with that. Have a great day.